Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a Canadian immigration law podcast. This episode, we are joined by Michael Green, the lawyer for Jaskarat Singh Sidhu, to discuss the federal court decision in Sidhu v. Canada, Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, Neutral Citation 2023, FC 1681. Mr. Sidhu was and currently is a permanent resident who in April 2018 was driving a truck that collided with a bus carrying a hockey team from Humboldt, Saskatchewan. And as a result of the accident, uh, tragically 16 lives were lost and an additional 13 people were injured. Uh, the Canada Border Services Agency, after Mr. Sidhu completed his sentence, sought to refer him to an admissibility hearing to strip him of his sentence. And uh, Michael Green, acting for Mr. Sidhu, sought judicial review of that decision. The Chief Justice of the Federal Court dismissed the judicial review and set forth the test and the procedures for the law regarding the CBSA referring permanent residents who are convicted of serious crime to the Immigration and Refugee Board. So that is the topic of today's episode. Um, we have started uploading the videos of these episodes to YouTube. The channel is Borderlines Podcast, so you can watch it there as well. And once again, if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Here's the situation that we, where we stand now. Um, Mr. Sidhu received a couple of years ago a, a letter from the CBSA saying they were considering his case, deciding whether or not to send him to a, a, a removal hearing. A removal hearing would result in a loss of his permanent resident status with no right of appeal because he got a sentence longer than six months. So we made extensive submissions to the CBSA. They, they were kind enough to give us extensions and allow us lots of time to make those submissions. Uh, we probably put in about 650 pages of submissions and supporting documents. Um, they took uh, a year, over a year, to make a decision. What they did was they, and after about eight months or nine months, they actually wrote to us and said, do you want to update your submissions? It's been a while. So we did. I mean, I think they were bending over backwards to be seen as being procedurally fair. Um, but then in the end, they came out with a decision that was, uh, no, we're going to send this case to uh, a, a hearing, which means the end of permanent residence status for Mr. Sidhu. Um, so we challenged that decision in federal court. And uh, it's that decision that has just come out, uh, been issued by Chief Justice Crampton um, recently that says, uh, no, we, I don't find that there's been any breach of procedural fairness uh, or that the decision is unreasonable. And uh, he also makes pronouncements about what he thinks the state of the law now is, uh, particularly in light of a federal court of appeal decision in Obazagenwan, uh, which came out in June. Uh, that, um, so, so anyway, that's really what's shaken up the, the, the legal front here is the federal court of appeal decision, which he says, which just, Chief Justice Crampton says, well, that basically settles everything. Um, you don't have any rights uh, as a permanent resident. It's uh, there. There is no real process here other than a. It's like a rubber stamp. 
And Obaz is going like they're trying to get leave to to appear before the Supreme Court of Canada. Am I right? Like they're still waiting uh, a leave decision. I, you know, they are. So I, I think they made that argument to, in October is what I understand mm-hmm. and are still waiting for the Supreme Court to, to make a, a ruling on that. Um, you know, the Supreme Court only accepts a very small percentage mm-hmm. of, of leave applications. And, you know, I, I, I kind of read their weekly summaries and uh, they get it gets discouraging that usually when it's an immigration case, they don't get leave. It's very, very rare. So mm-hmm. this is what I think there should be leave. I think that the Federal Court of Appeals got to law dead wrong um but i'm not the federal court of appeal or the supreme court and so it just mm-hmm. we're gonna have to live with what what comes out of it so i think just step by step like if someone is a permanent resident of canada they've been convicted of a crime that constitutes serious criminality and they serve a sentence that's more than six months like mr sadu what are the actual steps that occur um, I posted to um, social media that we would be having you on. And most of the questions that I received involved kind of people wanting to sort of understand this process um, was the first botch of questions. So why don't we start with that? Like someone is just been, well, so first, like, I guess, do they go straight from jail to the airport or what are the actual steps? Okay, so to put in some context, uh, let's talk about the um, the way it works for for permanent residents in general and how it worked before they changed the act to take away appeal rights. So it used to be that a permanent resident who was convicted of a serious criminal offense, regardless of sentence, would have a right of appeal. So they would get a deportation order. The case would the CBSA would decide whether or not to to send the case to a hearing. If they decided yes, it's going to a hearing, then it it would go before the immigration division. And then they would have a right of appeal on humanitarian grounds, really considering all the circumstances of the case. Um, in uh, 2001, when they brought in the new Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, they said in certain cases, you will lose that right of appeal if you have a sentence, uh, a prison sentence of more than two years. Um, that's where they drew the line. They said that there would be a full review by immigration officers before those cases were ever processed. Um, that would be the substitute. Uh, but what the, the Federal Court of Appeal has just done is said, no, they didn't really mean what they said they said they meant. Um, that uh, when they said that uh, there would be a full review, they were they didn't really mean that. What the, the statute means is there is no full review. So now the process is that for the people like Mr. Sidhu, who, who have served over six months, um, CBSA is supposed to review the circumstances of the case according to the recent decisions, uh, including in the Sidhu decision. Um, that review is is basically a fact-finding mission, which is, was there a conviction or not? Is he a permanent resident or not? Whereas and, before, it was both, if I'm understanding, CBSA could look at someone's personal circumstances and also at the appeal before, they could look at someone's personal circumstances, also known as H- humanitarian and compassionate factors, which is no longer the case. Yeah, it, it was actually based on a case called Ribich, R-I-B-I-C, um, that that has governed uh, this process for a very long time, um, which was to consider all the circumstances of the case. They didn't actually use the words humanitarian compassionate in, in that, but it was like the seriousness of the offense, the level of remorse, rehabilitation and prospects for rehabilitation, strengthen your family ties in Canada and your other successful establishment. 
uh, and what hardship would be suffered by the um, by the individual or by family if they were uh, to be removed from Canada. And of course, the overarching concern always that comes into these is best interests of any child who's affected. Um, essentially, what the court has now said is that's not what an officer does, even though that's what the minister's representative said the officers would be doing. Um, that's no longer the case. So there will be no review. Uh, if it, I mean, the, the, basically, Chief Justice Crampton said uh, they need to change their manuals because the manuals, officers' manuals, tell them to do a review and to consider, consider all all these factors. And, they, and so you're supposed to get those considered. And, and as you know, and as anybody who practices in this area knows, this has been the standard practice since ERPA came out, is that officers will give a fair warning and they say, we're going to consider this, and you're invited to make submissions. So now we don't know where it stands because the court has, has come up with a completely different interpretation. And the, and the chief justice says, well, they're going to have to change the manuals accordingly. To so is this one of those cases, like, you know, often people will come to us as lawyers and say, the immigration department or their manuals are unreasonable. We need to go to court so that a judge can review this. But is this one of those examples where the courts are actually seemingly much more strict or rigid than even the department and the department's manuals? Yeah, and I, I, I suspect the CBSA is in a quandary right now. I mean, they know what was intended. They know what the Joan Atkinson said to the Parliamentary Committee in 2001, that the, the intention was that officers would replace tribunals in making these reviews. And that would be the role of the officer. And in Section 44, um, the Parliament expressly put in the word may. They may make a referral to a hearing. They may forward the case to, to a hearing. Uh, or, they may, or they may recommend it go to a hearing. But it wasn't compulsory. Now, the, what the court's done is interpret may to mean shall. The same that the officers don't have discretion. May doesn't mean may. And, which is odd because this is coming from relatively conservative judges who pr pride themselves, I would think, on being strict constructionists. Uh, but in this particular case, they've taken the, the, the express wording of Parliament and the intention of Parliament that there be discretion and twisted around to say, it, it really means that there's no discretion. Even looking at the manuals as they stand today, so I'm talking about Enforcement Manual 6, they keep dwindle, windle, um, whittling down what the scope of the discretion is. And that's something that I think we've been seeing over the years that, you know, uh, based on the jurisprudence, the, the, the scope of the discretion, I feel like... Uh, Normally, when we see a manual kind of talking about the scope of discretion being reduced, I feel that I'm seeing fettering happening. And so when you see a word like may in legislation, to me, that's an open may. That means it's an open discretion. There should be a full exercise, as you're saying, Michael, especially when there has been the loss of appeal rights. So I can't help but go back to the kind of purposive question, like why have we taken away those appeal rights if we haven't replaced it with a, a full substantive review? And so uh, that to me is where the tension really lies. And, I, you know, I'm with you in finding this resolution very unsatisfactory that there is no discretion and no appeal, which just means that in situations like this, where there is a very meritorious claim and there are significant humanitarian and compassionate factors, there's just no relief. It's, you know, 
personally, it's really maddening uh, for me because of the, the the legislative history. And I was personally very involved in it. I was the CBA's national chair at the time that this legislation was introduced and debated, and we made extensive submissions. I had extensive meetings uh, with executive, uh, no, most notably Gordon Maynard was was involved in that debate with him on this very provision. And we we were concerned then that there it wasn't explicit enough, um, and that the courts and the department would 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 whittle away at it as they have in fact done. Um, and you know we said you've got to put something in this more clear clearly in the statute. They didn't do that. They didn't make that change. They made some other changes here and there, uh, but they, the the assurance was very, very blatant to it, very clear and direct that there would be a full review of all the circumstances uh, by by senior officers. And in the yeah. case of long term permanent residents, it, it would happen at a very high level. So I've pulled well, open actually, the manual that we're that. referring to, and here you can see like it still refers to considering personal circumstances, which is I guess part of what the courts are saying uh, need to be removed from the manual. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, the, yeah go ahead. Sorry, no, I, I, I was looking at that part too, Steve, and I just, I, I remember when I was reviewing it in the context of a recent case, there are a lot of howevers. However, in cases involving uh, organized criminality, it is generally considered to be best that it's left to to the board. However, you know, and there are lots of, and, and so so I do think um, that that they are still trying to keep that minimal. But I just wanted to comment that I absolutely remember, Michael, when you and Gordon were making those submissions. I believe it was at the time when I was on the executive with the CBA. And I remember in those meetings saying, no, it's absolutely not our intention to remove that examination. And please don't, you know, don't be concerned about this. These, these, these submissions are still going to be heard. This is not their plan. And that, that you and, and Gordon were very preoccupied with, yes, but then we want to have that as something that's preserved in the legislation and not left to, to this vague promise. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember the minister made personal assurances uh, about this this very provision. And it had a lot to do with her own personal history of of the Just Desserts case where somebody was killed by, arguably by somebody who was on a, an administrative state uh, issued by the IED. Um, but in any event, she, you know, she was ad absolutely adamant. And then what happened after that, of course, is that the department split into two departments immigration and and then the CBSA, the enforcement. And the whole culture changed and the immigration minister lost control of that process. It became part of a, a CBSA process. And then, and you, then you've got the enforcement cops who were exercising this quasi-judicial function that was originally intended. And so it's it's the, the process has been preserved to a great extent, except that the attitude that comes with it is far less forgiving. Um, that's what we're seeing. And and now the courts are basically saying, you don't have to do it. You don't have to consider anything. And your reasons don't have to deal with these any of the evidence because um, that's not your job. They've, they've taken that job away from officers. So it's the Supreme Court may weigh in. Hopefully they will. I really do uh, hope that they grant leave on that case because I think it's, it's important. Um, 
because it does affect the rights of permanent residents in lots of other situations, uh, but certainly with any of the admissibilities. And we're all up in the air right now as to, you know, where we can go with the, what the remedies are. Uh-huh. The, uh, the Federal Court of Appeal in the case called Lynn uh, said that it's premature to raise these issues at, at federal court. You, you have to re- make your arguments at the immigration division. Um, and then JR that that decision. Now that was not for this particular kind of a case, but but uh, that's people who had appeal rights. Uh, they said for people who have appeal rights. But we know that DOJ is considering expanding their argument that of prematurity um, to apply to across the board, whether or not you have appeal rights. So it's there's there's some uncertainty, but none of it favors the immigrant. Yeah, so I've just pulled up what the state of the law is now, according to Chief Justice Crampton. So the principles, and you've articulated them already, but it's just, here's kind of a neat summary, is that the scope of discretion held by immigration officers and ministerial delegates is very limited, um, especially in cases of serious criminality and organized crime. And as you noted, they're on a fact-finding mission, not regarding a person's personal circumstances, but rather just the offense, whether there was a sentence, what the sentence was. They are specifically not to consider humanitarian and compassionate considerations. Um, and they're only meant to look into readily and objectable, objectively ascertainable facts. And this applies to both foreign nationals and permanent residents. Right, that's his, his, his takeaways, and those are all basically going out from the Obas case. Uh, you know, comments made throughout the Obas case, but they're mostly picking up on on previous uh, statements made in cases like Cha and Sharma, um, which were statements that were made that were obiter, and there was a fair amount of agreement in the courts that there were, the law was all over the place, that there were different competing decisions. And the Chief Justice in his own decision in McAlpin said, the law is unsettled here. Federal Court of Appeal is going to have to settle it. Well, the Federal Court of Appeal, when they got the case, the Obas case, they said, what are you talking about? It's all well settled. This case should never have even been certified. I mean, they slapped down the judge who certified the question for even certifying the question. And that's going to have a chill effect. It's going to be very hard for us to get certified questions in anything to do with these sections now. I think we should just pause quickly to explain what a certified question is, which is, I think, unique in immigration. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's unique in immigration that there's no ability to appeal generally a federal court decision unless the judge certifies a question of general importance. So in this case, uh, Chief Justice Crampton didn't certify a question of general importance, so you can't appeal in this case. That's that's correct, and and um, you know, in light of the Obama's case, not a surprise. I mean, the the I mean, the, the court of appeal. I, I thought that was unfair. I th- think that there, I think there there definitely was uncertainty in the law, and it's it's just wrong to say that it was clear because if you look at, for instance, the Hernandez case, which has never been expressly overruled. Um, Madam Justice Snyder, that that stood for years as the definitive case, which said that there had to be consideration, that PRs deserve more consideration than foreign nationals, but there had to be consideration of all the circumstances of the case. The, that, the question was certified in that case, the Department of Justice chose not to pursue it, and so thereby, thereby accepted this as a defining law. Now, in, in the Obas case, the 
Court of Appeal actually says the law is all well settled and cites Hernandez has been one of the cases that su suggests that without explaining how how Hernandez says something completely different. And Hernandez is the one case that focuses on, on the parliamentary intent. That is what the minister said to parliament. Um, and she that informs uh, Justice Snyder's reading in Hernandez. It's not addressed at all in uh, in the Obas case, in Mr. Sidhu's case. The Chief Justice says, well, notwithstanding that, and, and he's very clear about it, notwithstanding that the, the minister said all these things and intended something to happen, that's now been displaced by the court's interpretation. Too bad, so sad. You know, what they told parliament is irrelevant in, in effect, because mm -hmm. the courts have now pronounced. Even though I can't see that it, in the Obas case that the Court of Appeal gave any consideration whatsoever, and I don't even know that it was argued um, in terms of parliamentary intent. There's something else that I wanted to, you know, going back to the the first argument that you raised about um, where you're talking about the the reference to public opinion. Uh, I had challenges with this argument as well, and with the way that the court dealt with that, um, saying that the the reference to public opinion and to the negative letters had no bearing on the decision makers final uh decision i i had a really hard time following the logic in this portion of the decision because if vavilov is telling us that we're supposed to give meaning to the reasons as they were written by the decision maker and absent any extrapolation by the court what meaning is to be given to the fact that the decision maker made reference to the the negative letters that were received, if not for the fact that that influenced the decision maker in rendering a negative decision? Uh, to me, it's you know it, it's very hard to understand what bearing that had if they were mentioned but had no impact on the decision. Um, to me, it's just it's it, it's not logical. Well, it was it was even worse than that. Um, we had submitted uh, with our, as I said, extensive submissions. We had received hundreds of letters of support, um, like as against maybe two uh, that were negative, and they were racist. They were really, you know, they were not pretty, but but all, hundreds of letters of support, many from very prominent uh, Canadians, uh, some well known, some former judges, some profs senior departmental officials who are retired now, all kinds of people who wrote letters of support. Uh, we gave a representative sampling and said, we've got hundreds more we can we can provide you. The officer dismissed those letters and saying, we have far more letters uh, that have come in advocating in the opposite. And we said, show us those letters. This is this procedural fairness demands that you, you show us these letters and that there was a lack of procedural fairness that they didn't show us letters, including one by Michael Cooper, an MP, uh, who um, was advocating for, for their removal. When we finally got the trial record, we found out that they only received about, I think it was something like 22 letters and 12 of them were in, in support of Mr. Sidhu. So in dismissing all of this, the public support, which is, I argue, a reflection of what a reasonable Canadian would would think about this case and uh, you know whether they would want to grant relief, um, in dismissing them, the, the officer deliberately misstated the facts. And Chief Justice makes no, he just says, no, it doesn't matter because it's, public opinion is irrelevant. And so it doesn't matter. He doesn't have to consider them. 
but it's it's a case where the officer seems to create the impression that he did consider public opinion and he felt that the public opinion was overwhelmingly to against Mr. City, which was not reflected in the evidence. But there we are. And so where is, um, like, what are Mr. Sidhu's next steps? Because the Chief Justice makes reference to uh, the fact that he can apply or reapply for permanent residence through humanitarian and compassionate grounds. It's not really a stream, but I guess we'll call it a, a specific stream. Um, and so some, I got one question, which was, what would that actually look like for him and during that period between any loss of status and when he submits an application or when it's decided what status and rights would he have in Canada so um and this is the the problem with that process is that you can't make that application uh, for permanent residence on humanitarian and compassion grounds unless you're not a permanent resident so you have to wait until after the hearing so there will be a hearing scheduled um uh, in the next couple of months, um, just waiting for the notice to come out. Um, and at that hearing, uh, it's presumably they will take away his permanent resident status. Um, at that point, he can file an application to get permanent residence on humanitarian grounds. And that, but that's that's an application that goes to IRCC, not the CBSA. Um, and they do have a mandate to consider these these circumstances. The courts have not taken that away from them yet. And neither has Parliament in, in Section 36. Parliament took it away in, in certain other sections dealing with organized crime, for instance, um, but not with criminality. Um, so anyway, he can make this application, um, but he's removable. Uh, they, could, they don't have to keep him in Canada. In fact, the Department of Justice frequently argues um, that it doesn't matter if we remove the person because his application will still be considered in due course. And during um, that time, he can't work. And during that time, he will have no work permit. He can apply for a work permit. He can apply for temporary resident permit and work permit. Um, to, to And if there is a provision that says if you're not removal ready, um, they can issue a work permit. There's a couple of problems with that. And that he, he so he, he is given the opportunity to make a pre-removal risk assessment, arguing risk uh, that he faces if, if removed. Um, and they cannot remove during that process. That process usually takes a few months. So, um, you know, probably will be taking advantage of that process and filing an application for permanent res residence on humanitarian grounds. This is something we've talked about in the past, though, that removal proceedings are fast and IRCC proce proceedings are slow. So typical processing time for a TRP or an agency application is generally in the ballpark of a year unless something miraculous happens and removal proceedings generally occur within the space of weeks or months. Yeah, and you, you've got, uh, you know, the challenge is that the act specifically uh, was amended in, I think, 2013 to say that they must remove as, as soon as possible. Um, it used to be as soon as, as reasonably practicable. Uh, which allowed them a lot more flexibility. Now it says as soon as possible. Um, and so uh, and the courts have commented on it many times. You know, the opportunity for, for deferral of removal is is only short term and only for, for in rare circumstances. Yeah, and I think this is um, an important caveat that didn't get, uh, understandably, the media, you know, just saw that line. So like I've 
pulled up one CBC article, which just says that Mr. Sidhu now face or well, it says Mr. He said Mr. Sidhu now faces removal to India after spending years of hard work establishing a life with his wife in Canada. The judge added that Sidhu can still ask to be allowed to stay on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. And understandably, you know, the media aren't immigration experts, but I just found that like lines like that made it seem like, oh, there's just another step. The guy can continue to be here. He can continue to work. He can continue to live his life while there's yet another step. While in reality, as you know, you both pointed out, he can't work. He has no status during that time. He could be removed. Um, it's not like it's just this automatic next step that occurs in the process. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's, you know, people often characterize it and you see it in, in judicial decisions sometimes, oh, there's other remedies available. Well, there's not much available actually for people in this situation. It's the, the humanitarian compassionate uh, is, is the one, especially now in, in light of what the courts have just said on regarding the section 44 review, it, it would appear that the humanitarian application is, is really the only thing you have left. And that, uh, like you say, you 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 can, you're, you're not allowed to work. You have no status, um, and you're subject to removal on pretty short notice. And then, as you mentioned, like going forward, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a you know odd jam that even CBSA could be in because uh, they can't just amend their manuals to say officers can consider humanitarian compassionate grounds if a minister wanted such a policy because as you note, the courts have said that that's not what the law says um it's going to be hard given the federal court of appeal decision for federal court judges to change the law so really like to if if the government did at this point want to reintroduce the ability of cbsa officers to be able to consider all factors um without you know just telling cbsa officers to ignore the law what uh like it, it would take what a regulatory an actual regulatory amendment it's, it's no it'd be it would take an amendment to the act um that's because it's a rights issue um so it's got to be in the act not the regs um and so i mean i think this is a, a case where the this the canadian bar association and other groups who are representing immigrants uh have to be pushing for for legislative change this legislative change actually should have happened a few years ago um in 2013 when they introduced the faster removal of foreign criminals act they brought in a bunch of draconian provisions that even though the the federal government under the liberal government has overturned much of what they did in, in the criminal justice areas such as mandatory minimum sentences, they have done precious little on the immigration front. And we have seen uh, the rights of permanent residents, especially, but immigrants in general, foreign nationals too, um, greatly diminished. And this is like another nail in the coffin. This, the, these judicial decisions are, and, and they, they follow a trend. And I, I think of an unfortunate trend at the Court of Appeal, which is that it seems the decisions always go against the rights of, of, of the immigrant. They always side with the the, the federal government, and and um, it, it's just it's it's discouraging. But I think it, it it requires Parliament to get involved. Why do you think there's been so little action? Like when the Liberals first came in almost a decade ago, they quickly amended the Citizenship Act, and they haven't done an immigration specific bill. As far like I don't think there has been an immigration specific bill 
um, since they came to power almost a decade ago. There's been tinkering with express entry and omnibus budget bills, but no comprehensive immigration act or amendments. So particularly dealing with the, the, the enforcement side, um, the rights side, uh, the due process side, um, there has been nothing. And it's it's very discouraging. We've had a revolving door of uh, junior, relatively junior ministers come in. Uh, John McCallum gave us great hope when he came in because he was very knowledgeable, very experienced. He had been the immigration critic for years. And he he did have the strength to make changes, right. but he got sacked, and um, we we you know we've had to, since then. I don't think anybody who has had a really strong understanding of this, these aspects, the the rights aspects, uh, since then. The last visionary we had was Kenny, and he was the one who really spearheaded the taking away of many of these these appeal mechanisms and uh, procedural rights. Uh, but I, I'm 100% with you, Michael, that for me, there's no there's no explanation for why you would be removing a right of appeal, why there wouldn't be no, there would be no ability for a permanent resident to have an equitable, to, to argue the equitable side of their appeal uh, before loss of permanent resident status. I just, I can't get my head around it. I, you know, so you go back and read the Oba's case again, and you, you, you're going to have a just as hard a time. You know, the the judge says something to the effect of it. It's hard to believe that Parliament would go to so much trouble crafting these these provisions that limit your your appeal rights, uh, and then want to give officers discretion. Well, that's exactly what they wanted to do. That's what they intended to do. It's not baffling at all. But it, it's baffling to the Court of Appeal, and it's it's somehow they read in the fact that they restricted appeal rates as meaning they wiped out any consideration whatsoever, which is not the intention. Well, and the minute you start reading this decision, um, you know, that there's a sort of an apologetic tone <laughs> to, to the decision that, you know, I understand this is not the decision that the public is going to be hoping for. And, you know, however, I am just reading the rules as they're written and I'm interpreting this in the context of the Vavilov decision. And this is just not, uh, you know, this decision was not unreasonable. There you have it. Uh, and I feel like this, um, this approach to to rights in the immigration sector is just so disappointing and so discouraging. Uh, you know the, the 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 line that hard cases make for bad law. I just I feel like uh, we've just been closed in by this um, this lack of rights approach uh, that really we've dwindled it down to virtually nothing. Where an outcome that is despicable to so many um, is still the prevailing decision. Yeah. You know, when you you read this, you know those four principles that you just quoted uh, that that uh, the chief justice tried to distill from the Obas case. Um, the uh, it it's essentially says that permanent residents have no more rights than foreign nationals. So, when a person who's illegally here and commits a crime um, is entitled to the same level of of review as some. A, a permanent resident who may have come to Canada as an infant, be a complete product of Canadian society, have made one single mistake in an otherwise stellar uh, life. Um, and that person gets only the, the same consideration as the illegal who just came in and broke the law. It's, that, that's baffling. And it, it's, 
it's really indicative of, I think, a need to change uh, because I don't think that Parliament intended permanent residents to have so few rights. Um, I, I think that we look at some of the other things that happened that we were successful in getting at the time that IRPA came in. Uh, for instance, the right to remain silent. Their original draft, it wasn't there. The permanent residents were compelable and had to answer all questions truthfully. Mm-hmm. We got them to limit that to uh, in cases only where there's applications, where they're making an application. They can't pick you up on the street now and demand that you answer questions. Yeah, I also find then it, it may be a theme this year or started last year, because I think we I touched on this in Mason, but there's also this weird disconnect between what the politicians will say to the media versus what goes on and they can almost deflect and say, well, that's the civil service and the court. So for example, in this case, I can't imagine Trudeau or uh, Mark Miller, you know, standing up before the press and saying, we don't want permanent residents to have their rights or their uh, individual factors considered before we take their permanent residence. Yet the bureaucracy and the courts will move that way. Um, It's a very recent case, but the espionage case of where the federal court and the department have now found that it's reasonable that someone can be inadmissible for espionage because they may be coerced in the future. I can't imagine at the political level, you know, either again, the prime minister or Mark Miller standing up saying, yes, people should be. And then the Mason decision, which received very little media um, attention, but the idea that, you know, and and you didn't see at the political level any of the current government standing up and saying, we want permanent residents to not have to be convicted before we can deport them. We want to just, if we think that they may commit violence, that should be enough. They don't say that publicly, yet the bureaucracy and the courts move in that direction, although the Supreme Court overturned it, without um, without the politicians normally commenting. And it always makes me wonder, like, do they either secretly support what's going on and is there quiet guidance or are they just oblivious to like the mechanisms of how the civil service and the courts are evolving the law? One more like this, which is, and I don't remember if it's you that brought this up, Steve, was this conversation about when does it become homegrown crime? At what point do we take responsibility for crime that is committed based on somebody's being here in Canada? I feel like, um, I don't know who it was, like Douglas Adams or something, who came up with this phrase that this is an SEP, this is somebody else's problem, that when somebody comes here, they might have lived here for all of their life, but then, as Michael says, they commit one they, they, one mistake, and that mistake might have been the, the caused by um, – a difficult life that they experienced here in Canada, sometimes because of a tortured immigration process. One mistake and you're off. Somebody else's problem, you know, but there's no uh, acknowledgement or recognition for the fact that the conditions that created the criminality were Canadian, not foreign. And so there's no sense of ownership, no accountability, no sense of our being responsible for rehabilitating that person at all. And I think, again, this like, okay, we're done with you over to the country of origin. 
And there's been pushback from some countries about you know the level to which we and and, and the United States to some extent to you dump our problems, uh, which mm-hmm. are really our own created problems. Yes. It's just the luck of the fact that the person didn't become a citizen. Sometimes yeah. these people thought that I've, I've had clients who thought they were citizens. They thought they got their citizenship with their children. They just didn't realize they, their parents never applied for them. And mm-hmm. and here they're getting deported. And uh much later that the i think you know unfortunately that you know it's so often happens in politics is where's the where are the votes the you know Mm -hmm. kenny could sell this kind of tough on crime agenda to his base because that's what they wanted was tough on crime and that included immigrant crime especially Mm -hmm. for sure you take mothers away from their kids in order to give caregivers and then you know, you're not prepared to live with the consequences, the social consequences that you're creating because of that. And again, the, the tough on crime agenda sells. Um, but, uh, but again, there's no, there's a dissonance between. Well, and, and yeah, well, I think, I mean, Kenny could sell that to his voters. I mean, they were probably even more progressive on immigration than much of the base. It's the current government that I find, because everything that I described has happened under the current government. Um, and kind of the silence at the political level, um, outside of like an individual MP writing a letter here or there, has has just puzzled me. Mm, agreed. I mean, it's it's it'd be interesting to know what discussions, if any, are happening in the minister's office over this this area. I'm sure they are having to look at oh, do we have to amend the the manuals to reflect these these court decisions, but. Who's looking at this and saying, "Is this right? Is this what we really intended to, and what we want to do?" And uh, and yeah, I'm I'm hoping that they're saying this needs a fix because it's wrong. This mm-hmm. is dead wrong. They should not be. You know, I don't think the intention was that the the parliament intended there'd be one strike you're out with no consideration of of your circumstances. That's ridiculous. In fact, yeah. they said everything other than that to to parliament when they put this through. The yeah. um. Uh, but but you know here we are uh, and so so hopefully there will be some political will to to do something because uh, unless the Supreme Court hears the case and 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 uh, and sets it straight I think we're we're doomed to to a situation for probably several years where PRs will have no rights. Yeah, but Michael, I think you I think it bears repeating that unless this change is made at the legislative level. Uh, then I think I think we really are lost. I think changes to policy manuals. I, I know that there's um, a real push from advocates to do this through litigation, and I obviously um, that's laudable. But at the same time, I think that we need this in black and white uh, so that uh, the intention is there. I think if you read, you know, any anybody who wants to say, "Oh, let's do this all through litigation," should go read the Obas again one case and see you know, how much hope you have for winning at the Puerto Court of Appeal um, on an immigration case. Uh, you know, I don't think that's where the solution lies. There's, you know, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's ever been a, a, a former immigration lawyer on the Court of Appeal. Um, not that I'm aware of, but there's only un- recently been any immigration lawyers on the federal court. So mm-hmm. that does color things. It, it just yeah. does. It's uh, especially uh, given what you said about the likelihood of getting leave to to go further to the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just getting to the Court of Appeal in the first place, especially with the chill effect of that Obas decision, is going to have on on federal court judges. I mean, they're going to have to think really like, do I dare get myself slapped down for certifying a question here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
in light of what was said there. So it's, uh, no, I don't think litigation is, is going to be the solution. The, interestingly, in OBAS, they, they, they uh, wanted to argue Section 7. And the court said, no, it's premature. You you didn't raise, or so you didn't raise it at, at, at mm. before the immigration officer. Therefore, you can't raise it to the federal court, which I mm -hmm. thought was astounding. And I can't believe that's correct in law. Yeah. Actually said it, you know, yes. and, you know, raising it at the officer level, this is contrary to section seven. Oh my God. You're not going to get a constitutional determination by an immigration officer. That's not going to happen. And even the immigration division, I don't have a lot of hope for if you want to, challenge the whole system at that level. But in any event, here we are. Uh, and it seems the courts have shut down even the constitutional argument made it very difficult to make that argument. So yeah. we're back at, at, yeah. at the minister here. And, you know, this is where that the change had to be made. And to bring this back around to like access to justice. So you're talking about an individual applicant is supposed to have the wherewithal to make constitutional arguments. Uh, <laughs> like, honestly, what kind of a justice system are we talking about? Well, and, you know, so, so this has always been a, a, a bone of contention for me about, you know, their, this, the, the procedural fairness of the existing system mm -hmm. that has just been struck down anyway. But uh, is the... Quite often, we'll get our client, we'll get served with a letter while they're incarcerated. Uh, many of these people don't, they're, they're immigrants who don't speak good English in the first place. Um, and so they don't even understand what they're getting. And I've seen so many of those over the years where they get this letter saying, tell us all about yourself because uh, we're, we're trying to decide whether we should deport you. And they don't tell them, go, sit, go get a lawyer, get some legal advice. Um, Nothing. And, and so often the submissions that get made are so weak and, and unsubstantiated that they don't have a chance uh, in that process. Well, now that process is, it, it looks like even that process is being gutted um, because we're not even sure they have to give them those letters anymore. Um, and this is leaving aside financial means to make a, to make that kind of plea, leaving aside mental health issues in terms of like, how are you doing uh, psychologically during a period of incarceration, you know, especially if you are truly feeling remorse, which is, uh, it's not, it's not going to be a pretty period of time when you're receiving that letter, you know. Um, so well, yeah. and, and, but most of the, I hate to say it so, so often I've had people who, who didn't understand the letter and, and mm. didn't realize this is their only kick at it. This is, if that sure. decision goes against them, they're out. They yeah. Don't. But I've also, I've had clients who are so racked by remorse and so gutted that they actually, um, at that stage, can't really grasp the full consequences and they don't actually, um, they're, they're not able to, they, they feel so guilty. Um, and, yeah. you know, and so it, it's just, um, that doesn't, that doesn't, it doesn't put them in a right frame of mind to understand what the full weight of the consequences are if this is just allowed to roll over them. Well, that was Mr. Uh, Sidhu, I believe. Every media story that I've seen about this talks about how mm. unbelievably remorseful he immediately exactly. was. He immediately pled guilty. That's kind um, of why I'm raising it here. Yeah, yeah. it's just... No, it's, uh, it's uh, you, you pointed out, it's, it's, it's the case. He, you know, he was racked with remorse and, and pled guilty to everything, even though it would have been much better from a legal standpoint to fight it and try to do a plea bargain. Um, so many of these uh, uncontrolled intersection cases end up in a, in a careless driving conviction under the Provincial Traffic Act. Um, that's what Premier Scott Moe got for going 
through a through a stop line, stop sign and killing somebody. Careless driving. That's the way they've usually been dealt with by the courts. But you know, he might have been able to get it himself. Who knows? I mean, this this case is unique and it's horrific. And who knows if they could have if they would have done that kind of decision. But um, he didn't even try. And that's so often the case that people don't try because of the, the state of mind they're in at the time. But his conscience and his morals drove him to like accept the consequences of his conviction. And it's had such a huge consequences for him. And there's no, there's no recognition of that. And there's no, um, there's no balancing that happens in the immigration process as a result. Especially as a result of these decisions. Too, for sure. Exactly. In this case, because, it, you know, there was some balancing, a, a, an effort at the balancing by the officer. We didn't think it went far enough. We didn't think it was fair. Um, Chief Justice said it was fair, uh, but, he, but he didn't even have to do that. He said that the law is, set, is settled. You don't even have to do that balancing. So mm-hmm. um it's you know it feels a bit like double jeopardy in a way that you're punished for the crime and then you're punished for the crime you know and uh well and the process by which we take away somebody's permanent residence um i would like to think we'd have a just process but according to the courts there's no justice required at all basically that that uh it's just an automatic decision uh mechanical decision if you will um, and I, I, think, I can't believe that that's what Parliament intended, but that's that's how the courts have interpreted. Do you think, and maybe we'll wrap on this, that it should just be decided at the criminal stage whether someone loses their permanent residence as part of the criminal sentence, and just collapse it all into one thing instead of having sentence and then a whole process for immigration, just dealing with it all at the outset? Uh, no, um, sometimes. There's a, there's a couple of things here, but 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 sometimes these removal proceedings happen long after um, after the the, the the criminal event. Uh, sometimes the criminal event itself uh, doesn't get dealt with by the courts for many many years. Sometimes it goes through an appeal appeal process, whatever. So the circumstances, I think it's important to look at the circumstances that are current rather than as they existed at the time of the offense. Um, I think that's all relevant. And there are there are all kinds of factors that come into play here. I want to raise one other thing, too, is that the implications of this. Um, we talk about people, you know, the convictions in Canada under Section 36.1, but uh, 1A. Uh, but there are uh, foreign convictions come into play here. And also the fact that somebody may have committed a crime in a foreign jurisdiction um, can, can lead to inadmissibilities. And... Um, so, so something as simple, let's say a person gets convicted of impaired driving or a police guilty to impaired driving and, and they're a permanent resident, they, they do it in another jurisdiction, let's say in the United States when they're on holidays. Um, but that person can now be stripped of permanent resident status without any consideration of the circumstances of their case. Um, same thing with committing an offense in another jurisdiction. So, oh, it so is... it's funny you should raise that because the the immigration story today, I guess, and I I, I feel like there's a bit, possibly have a misunderstanding going on is that uh, according to CBC, there's a uh, someone was convicted in absentia in Russia of spreading false information about the war in Ukraine. And she was pulled aside during her citizenship ceremony and said that they would have to be at this their citizenships. She wouldn't be able to do the oath. And she was getting a PFL saying we need to determine if there's equivalency and all that. Now, I assume in this case that 
once they have all the information about what led to her being convicted in absentia in Russia, um, that it doesn't equate to spreading false information under the Canadian criminal code. Uh, I mean, that's what I hope, but it, it does kind of serve as an example of what you're saying, where foreign convictions um, could impact someone's permanent resident status. But it's not just convictions, remember. It's if an officer has reasonable grounds to believe committed an offense. Mm -hmm. And so I've got one of these, that guy was pulled in off of his citizenship the day before his citizenship's oath ceremony uh, because of allegations made um, in a in a country that has a reputation recent reputation for interfering in our, our our domestic affairs, including possibly carrying out targeted killings. Now, um, this guy is on the wrong side of certain influential people in the government. We believe that's what's behind this. But it, all they have to do is an officer just has concluded, I, I believe there's reasonable grounds to support the conclusion that he committed an offense, even though we're saying he's framed. Um, and bang, he not only loses his chance at citizenship, he gets stripped of his permanent resident status and can be removed from Canada with no right to any kind of a, a, a hearing process. It's uh, it's more than a little disturbing. It's Sorry, I, I misstate. He would get a right to go to the Immigration Division to have that determination made on a, on a 36-1C, but that's it. It, it. that And that would not consider its personal circumstances at all, only whether or not he had reasonable grounds to believe he committed the offense. Mm -hmm. So there are yeah, some far-reaching, uh, you know, uh, implications for something like, like mm -hmm. this. It could be, you don't even need a conviction for impaired driving. You could have just, if an officer concludes that they believe they saw the police it. report and they, they believe you committed the offense. No, I think this, uh, I think I was telling Deanna, I think that 2024 is going to be probably the year of different um, security or enforcement type stories. Like we have upcoming episodes on the new inadmissibility provisions due to sanctions and what that could mean. There's this Chinese espionage decision that came down uh, and it just seems like you know we're filling our calendar the geopolitical very uh, yeah <laughs> the geopolitical landscape um you know you mentioned a country that may have ordered a uh, assassination on canadian soil and the possible repercussions of that this year as that unwinds mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be it's going to be quite a year i think mm -hmm. yeah and i mean i wish i could just say that it was all rosy and that, that we're going to see all kinds of victories for justice and due process um i i worry about this no. you know these cases being in carpenters of of a different shift that's been happening uh, especially in the in the courts yeah we're all putting on our seat belts for sure yeah. yeah well thanks for uh coming on i know you've been up early after getting home from victoria so the um i i just want to say one other thing is that you know, what's been heartwarming in this, this Sudu case has been the outpouring of support, um, both, uh, you know, from people in the legal field um, and the ju the justice field, but then on a, on a very personal level, um, especially for my clients. I don't know it's well known, but my clients just, had, they had a baby in, in April and um, that child has had severe medical problems. Like, Oh my God. Uh, spent like first 13 weeks in ICU that kind of stuff and and, um, and it's an ongoing thing so there's a 
but there's best interest of the child issues that just unfortunately are, are here and not by design. It's just unfortunately part of it. They have been pretty buoyed by the support they've gotten from a lot of people. And I just hope that, hope that that continues. Oh, Michael, thank you for sharing that. That's poor family, honestly. Like this case really, I think um, some of these some of these issues that we know very intimately, I understand they're very complex and they take a lot of teasing apart because of all of the nuances of immigration law. But something about this case really brings it down to the human element. Bad things happen to good people sometimes. And I think it really does help distill uh at a very basic level, what's wrong with our immigration system right now. Um, anyways, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with us today. And I think it's helped clarify a lot. Well, yeah, I can wrap with a, an email that I got when I said we were having you on, and I won't name the person who emailed, but they initially wrote to just say, oh, is there also a petition going around to sign to keep the subject from deportation? To which I said, no, do you happen to know Mr. Sidhu? Um, and this person just wrote, no, I do not know him personally. I would not like, I would just like to support him in not being deported. It is tragic what has happened, but I am sure he will be paying mentally for the rest of his life, along with the jail record. Please keep me informed of any petition circulating, of uh, which I don't know of any, but maybe. There you do. was a petition. Uh, I haven't seen uh, what's what's become of it. It was just a private initiative that somebody started up quite, you know, a couple of years ago, I think. I'm not sure where it's at. There's a fundraiser. Uh, it's not GoFundMe because GoFundMe, they, they went on there and they got kicked off right away. I think somebody, somebody objected, let's just say, but they've got it under another platform called fundraising, uh, that they've been able to raise some funds. Okay. Well, if I see it, I'll link to it in the uh, show notes. Yeah. Good on you for doing this work, Michael. It's uh it's a hard, it's a hard one.